Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet you want a look that is timeless. And you also want a custom experience, creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly, and they're also easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. And by the way, their covers are both removable and washable. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofa and sectionals made for outdoor living. Cozy now has expanded from just an online market to a first-person space in Toronto, or you can go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, C-O-Z-E-Y.com, to start customizing your furniture now. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Today it's my interview with Brianna Holt. She's the pastry chef at Tandem Bakery, which operates out of an old body shop in Portland, Maine. We chat about how to mix and match flavors in order to transform your baking. I think I like getting out of what seems like a strict rule. Like if I know that a recipe calls for milk, I think to myself, could it be better with buttermilk? Or, you know, if I replace brown butter, could that nutty flavor complement the other ingredients? Stuff like that. Also coming up, Dan Pashman struggles to find a reliable way to cook eggplant, and we learn how to make chicken vindaloo. But first, it's my interview with Stephen Heyman on his biography of Louis Bromfield, a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist who was once America's most famous farmer. Heyman's book is called The Planter of Modern Life. Stephen, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. You just wrote a book about a guy I should have heard of, Louis Bromfield, and never did. (laughs) He was a famous literary figure and also a famous figure in the world of organic farming. Uh, Maybe we could start about his beginnings. In World War I, he was in World War I. It it seemed like that was a, a turning point for the century, but also for him. That's right. I mean, he was one of many future novelists to serve as a volunteer ambulance driver in World War I. But Bromfield was immediately captivated by France, by the culture, uh, and by the agriculture. Um, Even in the midst of the war, in the midst of the fighting, he was kind of looking at the sweet peas growing uh, close to the front and how the peach trees were grown against uh, old walls. So he ends up in this idyllic, uh, you know, 1920s, 30s France, Hemingway, Edith Wharton, uh, Gertrude Stein. He has a place outside of Paris. Uh, Just tell us about that. Right. So like a lot of writers in the 20s, he moves to Paris to take advantage of the advantageous economics. And there was obviously a lot of interesting cultural things happening there at the moment. But instead of renting a garret on the left bank, Bromfield very quickly moves from Paris to the countryside to this suburb called Saint-Lys, where he begins work on a very elaborate garden. And the garden becomes a kind of salon and hotspot where Bromfield connects with lots of different personalities, including his two closest friends, Gertrude Stein and Edith Wharton. And these writers were obviously kind of diametrically opposed in style, but they were both drawn to Bromfield because of his his passion and knowledge about gardening. Well, he's a true Renaissance man. Uh, someone described him in his garden as having the shirt of a gangster, the trousers of a student, the slippers of a peanut salesman. So yeah. here's a guy who talks about Golden Bantam Corn, How to Cook a Hamburger, uh, and then Bombay Palace Intrigue. So he, he, he was fully versed from literature, gossip, celebrity, cooking, gardening. It's true. And I mean, I think that because of all of those divergent things, a lot of people in, in his own time didn't really know what to make of him. And I think that that partially accounts for why he was forgotten, ultimately. He was a very famous novelist whom I've never heard of, but he sold a lot of books. Could you just talk about that part of his career briefly? 
Yeah, so he rose to fame in uh, the 1920s as a novelist, and his third novel, Early Autumn, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1927. And in that decade, he was better known and, and certainly more highly regarded by the literary establishment than either Hemingway or Fitzgerald. At the time, his novels became a little bit more commercial. Uh, many of them were made into Hollywood films, including The Rains Came, one of his most famous novels, which was made into a film in 1939. And it was with the money that he earned from that film that he was able to finance this amazing farm in Ohio called Malabar. Well, it's interesting because you describe his farm, Malabar, as a medieval fortress manor of France. So he was an isolationist in some ways by returning to Ohio and buying this farm. On the other hand, he was very much out and about in society and trying to you know, propagate his views about not just literary things, but also about how to farm. Absolutely, yeah. Bromfield was a consummate romantic, but when he started farming in a major way, he also had to balance out that romanticism with some um, serious pragmatism. So let's just talk about farming practices in the States up until that time. He was not happy with the state of American farming, right? Absolutely. He had grown up kind of with one foot on his grandfather's farm and loved everything about farming. Then in the 1930s, while he's sitting in his lush garden having tea with Edith Wharton, he's reading accounts of, of the Dust Bowl. He's reading about farmers being dispossessed of their land by the millions. And he learns about chemicals entering agriculture in a big way and a lot of extremely harmful practices. And it affected him as well. When he bought Malabar, he found the farm in a kind of romantic snow-covered valley in the winter of 1938. And then when the snow melted, he realized that all of the sandy, loose, alluvial topsoil had basically been washed off the hills, and there were gullies dug so deep that you could lose a horse inside them. And, and so basically, he transforms his own land, and in that process kind of transforms himself and becomes an evangelist for what he calls the new agriculture. What has come out of Malabar? I mean, one of the things he talked about was his dairy herd had very few incidents of disease uh, because of the quality of the feed. Um, was anything learned by American agriculture from Malabar that's not in use today? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can't point to one specific technique and say Bromfield invented this. But I think that he started a conversation that's that's really still going on today, and the conversations about how we can responsibly live off the land and feed ourselves. Plenty of other people wrote about agriculture before him, but in Bromfield's work and in the work of his allies from the 30s and 40s, we see for the first time the, the emergence of an environmental consciousness that is recognizably modern. Um, you know, he was the, really the first celebrity, the first figure of national prominence to, on the one hand, celebrate food, and on the other hand, problematize it, you know, connect it to the environment, to health, to politics, and even, even to art. So I read uh, in your book that Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall got married at the farm in the 1940s, and, and Bromfield was actually the best man. Yes, and that was a big moment for Malabar because it kind of established the farm's national reputation. It was a huge celebrity wedding. 
And people were confused. Again, why are these two Hollywood stars getting married in rural Ohio? But Bromfield had that kind of charisma and those connections. And so he could make his farm a destination, even though it was in the middle of nowhere. Here's a guy who, you know, Humphrey Bogart gets married to Lauren Bacall on his farm. He's a literary figure. He's more famous than Hemingway. And, you know, I'm reasonably well-read. I'd never heard of him. Uh, I never heard of Malabar, and even though I'm fascinated by this topic. How does history drop people like this? They sort of become obscure. Is, is there a rhyme and reason to that? I think it's a great question, and it's almost impossible to answer. My best theory is that in, in, in Bromfield's time, no one really understood how the different pieces of his life fit together. You know, the literary critics, they dismissed his farm as the, the plaything of a dilettante. Ordinary dirt farmers were suspicious of his Hollywood friends and high society connections. And then the environmentalists were turned off by his unpredictable politics. So he was a confusing figure. And he just kind of soared like a comet through the first half of the 20th century and then vanished. If he were alive today, do you think he would be someone who would be helpful in finding the way forward to the next uh, act, whatever that might be? I do think so. And I also think that the modernity of what he's doing is, is kind of central to his project. You know, he, if he were alive today, would probably have several million followers on Twitter and a podcast, and he'd be <laughs> trying to really move the needle. He was a, a pragmatist and somebody who was interested in connecting with lots of people. And I think that I, I wish we had someone like that today arguing for a better way of structuring our agricultural system. Stephen, it's been a real pleasure having you on Mill Street with a story of Lewis Bromfield. Thanks. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. That was Stephen Heyman. His book is The Planter of Modern Life, Lewis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Chris. Do you want to take the first call? Yes, I do. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Barbara in Cypress, Texas. Hi, Barbara from Cypress, Texas. What can we help you with today? My question is about recipes that call for fresh mint. Okay. My mints have a base of spearmint oil or peppermint oil, except for my red-stemmed apple mint, which is the only mint that has both spearmint and peppermint oil. So I'm wondering, when a recipe calls for mint, what am I using? I think the short answer is spearmint. Yes, I would say so. Peppermint is stronger. Yeah, I think if you want a more assertive mint with a little bit of a bite, then you go for peppermint. If you want a, you know, a more mild mint, you go with spearmint. And I have not had a lot of experience with apple mint. Um, I, that's interesting that it's got both of the oils from the two different kinds. But I would say that would be somewhere in between. Yeah, you know, I think in general you just want a mild mint for cooking. Yeah. You don't want anything too assertive because it will just take over the dish. Right. Some of the mints are self-explanatory. My chocolate mint smells like dessert. Yes. The mojito mint, you know, clearly that's going to be Cuban. But some of the other varieties 
you know. So wait, wait, wait. There's a mojito mint? I've never heard of no, that. No, come on. I think you made no. that up. No, it's a large-leafed mint with a beautiful green color that's very textured. I've got a, probably 12 varieties of mint. i, I got to back you up a second. You have like a dozen okay. kinds of mint growing in your garden? Yes, I do. And, and when um, a recipe calls for mint, I wind up standing in my garden just flummoxed, not knowing which one to use because they never tell me spearmint or peppermint. If I know spearmint or peppermint, then I can fine-tune from there. Well, I, I knew a woman once who started with one cat and ended up with a dozen. <laughs> I mean, is this like you ended up, you started with uh -huh. someone gave you a spearmint plant and just sort of yeah. got out of control? I'm a gardener who's looking for recipes to make a case for why I need a dozen mints <laughs> or half a dozen <laughs> kinds of oregano or ten kinds of basil. Oh, I see. Um, so this isn't just mint. You, you're just an herb garden nut. Nut. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, exactly. since, since Good. Good you're, for you. I have to ask you a question then. Since you're an okay. herb garden gal, what is your all-time favorite unusual herb? Mm, good question. My favorite unusual one would be a barbecue rosemary because it grows big, straight, firm canes. And then I can put lamb on those. I oh. use my rosemary as an actual skewer for lamb kebabs. For kebabs. Wow. Yeah. Good for well, you. Barbara, yeah. thank Good you for you. sharing all that. You know, you could That's start cool. a little um, blog of your own. I would love to. My meals, I'll start out in the garden with a pair of scissors. What I needs love a haircut? That. That's a good and then I go find <laughs> something to do with it. I think we should name the barbecue rosemary Barbara Q. Ah, Rosemary. I like that. I like there that. There you go. Okay. Take, Name will live on. Take care. Take you. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Laura. Hi, Laura. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from New Jersey. So I have a question on popovers. I tried to make them a couple months ago. They're the probably simplest thing to make, flour, milk, egg. And I made them fine and they tasted well, but they didn't hold their shape. So I'm wondering what is the science behind getting them to like not flatten once you take them out of the oven. Uh, I have a few questions, popover questions. Um, did you let okay. the batter sit for at least half an hour before you baked it? No, okay. I did not, yeah, actually. Let it sit for 30 minutes. Did you preheat the popover pan in the oven? I did not preheat the popover <laughs> pan in the two. oven, actually. I should stop now. Yeah, let the batter sit for 30 minutes, preheat your pan, and then... Okay. Once you took them out of the oven, did you take them out of the popover pan right away and then pierce the bottom with a sharp paring knife? No. <laughs> I got three out of three. <laughs> I went for it. Well, I risked everything. Okay. Yeah. Let the batter sit, preheat the pan, and when they come out, don't let them sit in the pan. Take them out on a cooling rack and then just punch a little hole in the bottom for the steam to escape. There's one last thing you could try. Slightly okay. overcooking them. You have to be careful because I don't like popovers that are too crispy. I like that really soft, you know, moist interior. Mm -hmm. Just give it two or three extra minutes, and that'll help set them better so they're less likely to collapse. 
All right, now, okay. now I've run out of everything I know about popovers, and now it's Sarah, Sarah's turn. One of the things okay. I wanted to ask you that's very important, do you have popover tins, or did you try to do it that's, in muffin tins? I did. I used muffin tins, and that was another oh, thing I was going to ask okay. you. Did I use a I wrong think, tin? I think that the popover tins are better because they're taller, so you have a okay. chance to develop a taller popover, which point. will have more structure. Preheat the tins? Well, yes. Yes, preheat I mean, the tins. Okay. okay. I'm going to agree with Chris, even though I've made them without preheating the tins. And, but yes. and what about okay, piercing so the bottom with a paring knife? I don't think you have to. Okay. I've never pierced the bottom, you know, and they've stayed up pretty well. But I will say this. Popovers like souffles are powered by the air and right. eggs. And it's what goes up must come down, and there's no way around it. Unless you bake it just a little longer. Which I agree with Chris about. But, you know, part of the joy of it, is rushing it from the oven and eating it, you know, while it's still hot. And I agree with Chris that you want you want that sort of gooey, ooey, gooey stuff in the middle. And use real popover pans, which are six cups in a set. Right. right. And I think that will make a huge difference. Laura, give that a shot if you can remember anything we said, because I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> oh, but... no, I was taking notes. Oh, good. So thank you so All right. much. Okay, thanks okay. so much. Thanks. Thank Take you. Care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from pastry chef Brianna Holt. That and more after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, over the last decade, Las Vegas has become one of the most unique culinary destinations in the world, and not just on the Strip. It's a city with culinary innovation everywhere you look. Here's one chef's story sponsored by Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I'm the executive chef over at Main Street Provisions. So Main Street, we do new American cuisine with uh, emphasis on steaks and chops. It's an open kitchen, so you always see me at the past making sure all the food that goes out, we put a lot of love into it. Personally, I've always loved seafood. And our seasonal fish dish right now is uh, steelhead trout. We actually get whole fillets and uh, we air dry them. So it's nice and crispy. Uh, We do confit marble potatoes, braised fennel. And then we actually make a seafood broth with shrimp, clams, lobster, tomatoes, ajillo paste, which is a chili paste from Peru. You can eat that broth with anything. The chefs here can be very innovative because... Vegas is a destination. You get people from all around the world, so you can open up any type of cuisine and you'll have an audience here. People are always seeking new and new exciting uh, things to eat. So this is a great spot for chefs to just uh, create and you don't have to go to the strip to find a five-star meal anymore. You can just uh, be on the outskirts and find a restaurant there that you know that could be a Michelin-star restaurant like Mastry Provisions. It's off the strip, but I still serve one of the best steaks in Las Vegas. You know, put my name on that. <laughs> From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com culinary. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Brianna Holt, born and raised in Martha's Vineyard. Today, Holt is the pastry chef at Portland, Maine's Tandem Coffee and Bakery. 
Brianna, welcome to Milk Street. <laughs> Thank you so much. Maybe we should start with a description of where you work, because it's an old gas station turned yeah. into a coffee shop, a pastry destination. So so what does it look like, and what is it like working at a gas station? <laughs> it's really beautiful. It's like a big white building. It's got that kind of awning out front. Like it was never actually a gas station. It was actually a body shop. They worked on, you know, brakes and shocks and cars. They would lift them up inside that kind of thing. So it has that really beautiful sixties shape to it. You know, it's kind of wide and uh, lots of front window, big windows in the front and a big awning out front into the parking lot. So there's a lot of room to hang out there. The light streams in and it's, um, basically a big open space that we built a kitchen in. So you have this interesting view of baking. This is a quote from you. You're talking about a tray of biscuits. You say, they, referring to the biscuits, do the thing that I've asked them to do. So already they're alive, the little people <laughs> with my hands. They pop up in the right way. The top looks right. They lean over just a little. That is the moment that keeps me doing it. So you have this... Uh, personification of, of baking goods as friends or, or or people you like to spend time with. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think uh, it's like anything you do with someone else, kind of like a transaction of sorts. You know, I'm trying to like coax something out of the ingredients or the combination of ingredients in the oven or something like that. Um I think, yeah, especially with uh, biscuits, it's kind of easy to talk about that idea because every single little thing you do with your hands and your fingers results in that um, that top or that lean or the flake, you know? So, yeah, that's kind of how I think of it. I think I read somewhere that you have PTSD when it comes to muffins because you've made thousands of them. Is that true? Or have you have you got have you gone to some kind of recovery clinic and are back into muffins again? Man, it's tough. I would say I'm very, very slowly, gingerly, tenderly coming back around to the muffin. <laughs> but yeah, when I was probably like twenty-four, I I went back to Martha's Vineyard for a short time. I was in love with this guy, this musician that lived there. And I thought, if I leave my sort of post-college, what's coming next kind of life, and I go back to Martha's Vineyard, we're going to fall in love and get married and live together forever. And so I went back, and I um, I worked at this pretty crappy little sandwich shop. <laughs> and I made muffins at like 5 in the morning, every morning. So many. I mean, I can't. I don't even know how to talk about it. And we would make the mixture in like huge vats and then store them in Home Depot buckets, like five gallon <laughs> Home Depot buckets in this dirty walk-in. And the place was owned by this crazy guy who was never really there. He just kind of left it up to the teenagers and the 20 year olds, you know, and we would come in hungover and it'd be like 5 a.m. and I'd be scooping like really crappy muffins out of these like five gallon buckets uh, but we had to make them you know that was his recipe the muffin mixture and then you added blueberries or like bananas and walnuts or whatever and and they were huge you know they were like the size of like a like a softball and we sold so many I can't even begin to tell you and I just 
never liked them. I thought they could be better, but it wasn't my job to change it. And I just saw so many muffins, it became this like muffin nightmare. So let's talk about your interesting way of combining ingredients. I remember I last summer you did a chocolate cake with juniper in it or uh, yeah. pineapple and married with rosemary or apple with feta. Yeah. Um, so you, you have this herbal savory mix with something fruity or sweet. Uh, yep. you, you just end up doing this because it's two in the morning and you just chance upon it or you spend <laughs> months thinking about these combinations and scientifically come up with them? Both. I think all, all of the above. Um, yeah, sometimes it just, I mean, it sounds silly and cliche, but sometimes it just pops into my head. I think that probably happens with a lot of people out there. The more that I eat and the more that I see food around in the world, the more things there are kind of ping-ponging around in my brain. And so if I'm thinking about making something, you know, it's almost like just reaching into like a bucket of fish or something. You know, there's so much that I like and so much that I've seen and I'm excited about that um, sometimes something will just jump out to me. Or I kind of want to make something that feels right for the season or something like that. The chocolate juniper cake was sort of like a fall and winter time um you know that that the inception of that cake was like deep winter thinking about like richness and cold weather and sort of like this is gonna sound silly but uh like rich uh beautiful kind of medieval feasts you know and like what might be on the table and uh something kind of mellow but strong flavored Uh, It's also really beautiful. Juniper berry is gorgeous. It's not really a berry. It's almost more like a pine cone. What we do at the bakery is roast them, and they start to release their oils, and they get this crazy fragrant smell. It fills the kitchen. We try to do it when it's not busy because it is almost a weird, crazy smell, and people aren't necessarily sure if they like it. But then you grind it up, and um, and we make ground toasted juniper, and it's so – it just – uh, it's really beautiful smell. It's it's deep and woodsy, but also floral. And it just seems to pair really nicely with chocolate. And it's it's really good. It's almost like you bite into it and you're not exactly sure what it is. Here's my favorite Brianna Holt quote. <laughs> Have you ever chugged a Schlitz while prancing around in your house making pie? <laughs> Try it. Could you just describe <laughs> that image and whether you actually do that or not? I do do that, to be totally honest. And I I would challenge anyone to tell me that they don't. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's why I got into this business. I just love doing it and being in my kitchen and fussing with ingredients and prepping ingredients and putting things together. That's really fun for me. And, you know, I love listening to music really loud. I love drinking like cold, crisp, like beer flavored beer. And yeah, that's, that's how I feel about baking at home. I just, it's, it's just like total pleasure for me. Um, you have some tricks or things you use in baking. I know you, you put ricotta into batters a lot. Uh, you love brown butter, uh, with a cream cheese frosting or in a maple pie. What are some of the things you've, you rely on, you've learned, uh, that make you uh, such a good baker? 
I think I like getting out of what seems like a strict rule. Like if I know that a recipe calls for milk, I think to myself, could it be better with buttermilk? Could it be made more flavorful or have a better texture with the acidity that buttermilk would bring? Or would it have a richness and a density that ricotta um, could help with? Or, you know, if I replace brown butter in a recipe that I'm thinking of, could that nutty flavor complement the other ingredients? Stuff like that. Sometimes there's no need to go deeper and further, but I think I always try to think about it. Um, the question I get most uh, from people is, how do I know when it's done when it comes to baking? Yeah. So do you have some advice for us? Because every cookbook, you know, put a toothpick in it, press it down. Does it come away from the edges if you're talking about a cake? Yeah. Um, use an instant read thermometer, measure the temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of pies and cheesecakes should be undercooked when you take them out so it cooks on the counter. Could you just give us your tips for that? Yeah, I think all those things you just said are definitely real and true. I do think overall, and this is a broad statement, but I do think overall there's a tendency to overbake things in general. I know the toothpick trick is tried and true and our grandmothers said it, but ultimately I think a toothpick shouldn't come out clean from a cake. I think if the toothpick comes out clean, your cake is overdone. I think it should come out a little moist, moist crumbs, you know, and it also depends on the cake or brownies even. I think brownies should basically be like almost raw in the middle and then you take them out. I had a boss when I was younger that would always say cooling is part of cooking and I've never forgotten that. Hmm. And I think it's really important. I think it's true. I mean, something can come out of the oven and go onto the cooling rack at the bakery and you have customers in line and they're like, there it is. I want it. And you're like, it's not, it's not done. You might think it's done, but it's actually not done. It's going to sit there and the heat in the middle is going to escape and and things are going to settle. Like with the scones we bake, it it's one of the biggest learning curves for new bakers is to learn when the scones are done because you're going to think for a while that it's still a little bit raw in the middle. But really what's happening is you're going to pull it out and then that middle is going to settle and become the kind of like soft, deliciously cakey part of the scone, whereas the outside is like nice and crisp. So I think it kind of depends on what you're baking, but I think with a grain of salt, all those things that you said, those tried and true things about the cake pulling away from the pan and the poker in the middle of the cake um, can be guidelines, but I don't think that they're strict. You know, I think a cake should feel soft and tender and kind of bouncy when you poke at it with your fingers. I do a lot of touching of things in the oven. So let's take cheesecake because, you know, everyone runs around being sleepless and angry about cracking cheesecakes, you know. <laughs> Uh, which probably means they overbake them. So how do you know when a cheesecake's ready to come out? Man, well, when I bake a cheesecake at home, uh, it usually takes kind of a long time, and I always bake it. I know there are other methods, but I usually bake it in a water bath. And similar to a custard pie, I, I try to look for the perfect jiggle. Um which to me should be like a soft, like slightly chubby tummy or like a, like a fake boob or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like there should be this like jiggle, not like a waterbed where it's super wavy, but a little jiggle in the middle, 
a kind of a little scent like around the middle zone that's less jiggly and the edges more uh, more set and that's what i think of with a cheesecake that's the yeah i okay i'm speechless now um sandwiches you're you're in love with sandwiches love them because you know it's just a major improvisational art could you give us some advice about those of us who are a little sandwich challenged um (laughs) could you liberate us and give us some new ideas (laughs) yeah i my number one rule is that there are no rules about sandwiches um I I think it's an opportunity to put a bunch of stuff that you like the way it tastes and put it together. <laughs> and I'm a big fan of texture. So I have to have, there, there almost always needs to be something like crunchy in the sandwich. I mean, it depends on what it is. Oh, do we, why, why don't you just give us a, a couple of examples? Well, I, at home, I always put, not always, at home, I often put kimchi in my sandwiches. It's like really crunchy and fresh and kind of spicy. And so I think of it as like that, like crunchy, almost like lettuce, crunchy, fresh component. I've been making a lot of weird sandwiches during this strange quarantine lockdown time. Um, This kind of gentle Italian sandwich vibe. I get a lot of um, like Genoa or hot capicola or mortadella and cheese, kimchi, mayonnaise tons of mayonnaise and you're obsessed with mayonnaise right i love it so much i have a mayonnaise tattoo um wait a minute i make mayonnaise i buy mayonnaise wait wait, what's a mayonnaise tattoo it just says more mayo (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of like my life philosophy brianna it's been uh, just a great pleasure been a lot of fun having you on milk street thank you so much i love chatting with you chris That was Brianna Holt, pastry chef at Portland, Maine's Tandem Coffee and Bakery. Much has been written about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule. You know, it takes practice to become a genius. Well, practice is essential, but some people are simply born with a great gift. Mozart composed his first song at age five. Yasha Heifetz took up the violin at age three. And Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz mastered Latin before age 10. So in the kitchen, anyone can become a good, even a great cook, but few among us have an outsized talent for transforming ingredients into something really extraordinary. Combining chocolate and juniper, like Brianna Holt does, is not taught at cooking school. I think it's bred in the bone. It's time to chat with Raina Javeri about this week's recipe, chicken vindaloo. Raina, how are you? Hi, Chris. I'm well. Chicken vindaloo, something you know a lot about, something I know a little about. Where is it from and what's the recipe? So, Chris, chicken vindaloo is actually a signature dish coming out of the small state of Goa in southwestern India. Now, Goa was a Portuguese colony until as recently as 1968. So a lot of the Portuguese influences are in the cuisine, especially in this dish. Now, what I love about this dish is that it's a three-way combination, kind of a power punch of sweet, heat, and sour. There's a little sugar, some spiciness from dried chilies, and the tang from the two ingredients that give it its name, vind and aloo, vinegar and garlic. I didn't know that. Every time we work together, I learn something. So obviously the chilies are a critical ingredient 
Is there just one type they use, or it depends where you are in India when you make this dish? So it kind of varies, Chris. Kashmiri chilies are a fundamental part of this dish. They give it a lot of the color, the richness and thickness and brightness and fruitiness. But they're also local chilies that are searingly hot that are used. Now, neither Kashmiri chilies nor those local Goan chilies are available easily here. So what we've done is found a substitute. And what we do here is use a mixture of sweet paprika and cayenne. And that works pretty well. Is this just a basic braise? I mean, how do you make the dish? A skillet dish or what? So this is actually a great one-pot dish. It gets all cooked in a Dutch oven. And what I love about this dish is that the marinade becomes the sauce. So the chicken gets marinated for 10 to 15 minutes in a marinade that we make in the blender, very easy. And then all of that gets put straight into the Dutch oven. And the rest of it is almost hands-off. There's very little to do. The chicken may stick at the beginning to the bottom, and you get some really nice flavors developing because of that. And the sauce we see goes from a bright red to a deep brown, again, developing a lot of flavor as it cooks. But you cover it, walk away, about 45 minutes total, and this dish is done. Raina, thank you. Chicken vindaloo, sweet, sour, and spicy. One pot under an hour. You fulfilled all my dreams. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for chicken vindaloo at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman admits he is eggplant-phobic. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I use my basement music room to record this show, and I've been looking for a leather office chair for ages now. The good news is that I just found one. It's called the Gervin Charm Tan Office Chair which I found on a great furniture site called Article. Article offers a wide variety of designs from mid-century modern, coastal and industrial to Scandi and Boho designs. Article also offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. You pick the delivery time and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Plus, the prices are more than fair. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash MilkStreet, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash MilkStreet for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. 
The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, if you want to taste the world, travel to Las Vegas. It's one of the most international food cities in the United States. Here's one Baker story sponsored by Las Vegas. My name is Kimberly McIntosh. I am the chef owner of Milkfish Bake Shop, and I am a 2024 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef and Baker. I would say that the definite fan favorite would be our carioca dessert. Carioca is a Filipino street food that's like a coconut mochi fritter tossed in a coconut milk glaze and then some caramelized coconut curds called latik. And then I also added a really amazing Philippine sea salt. It's one of those bites of food where you get a different flavor every time. I don't think people are necessarily expecting that with something that looks so simple. And it piques their interest to see what else we have to offer in terms of how we represent Filipino food in a different way. I think Las Vegas is one of the ultimate dining scenes in America. You know, you see a lot of chefs who are based out in New York, based out in California, and what do they want to do when they want to take it to the next level? You want to open a restaurant in Vegas. It's been really cool to see a lot of celebrity chefs come out here like Jose Andres, Mark Vetri, David Chang. But also having that in combination with the incredible local talent that is here in the restaurant scene. Like I've never been somewhere that has this really great African kitchen, but they also have this really authentic Thai restaurant. People see a lot of other businesses being able to shine and being able to succeed out here. And I feel like that's really motivated a lot of people to share their food as well, which has been really exciting to see. That was Kimberly McIntosh. From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com culinary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, uh, my name is Lori. Hi, Lori. How are you? 
I'm good. How are you? Well, we'll see if we can answer your question. That always... And that, then we'll feel that good. That cheers me right up. Then we'll be very <laughs> good. Okay. So um, when I was growing up in the early 60s, my grandmother and mother used to take me regularly to a luncheonette. I always ordered waffles, and they had a tangy, almost sharp taste, like a bite to them. And I have been trying to reproduce that taste for most of my adult life, and I cannot do it. I mean, the obvious question, but I know you've already gone there, is buttermilk. You've tried buttermilk? I've tried buttermilk. I've tried yeasted waffles. I've hmm. tried, someone recommended malt, right. which I tried. But it had almost a bite to it that I cannot recreate. There's one thing you haven't mentioned, which is the world's most difficult waffle recipe, which is sourdough. Ah. Now, sourdough would have that tang. Um, I, I don't think a, a place like that would I bother either. making sourdough waffles. I think that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Maybe they made waffles out of the milk that it soured. Like sour oh. milk was a typical recipe, right, in a lot of baking back in the 19th century. Maybe they just used soured milk. That that's actually could be. Yeah. yeah. But the buttermilk is what I would think would be the I most obvious choice. I would too. And you, that didn't so do it, huh? It, well, again, I'm using commercial buttermilk. So uh, maybe they made their own buttermilk. I don't know. I would think in the early 60s, buttermilk was quite different than it is now. That makes the most sense to me. And the kind of buttermilk they were using was tangier than what we have today. That, That's possible. That would be my best guess. Because I think the sourdough thing is just not reasonable. I guess I can look at recipes for making your own buttermilk. What about adding some sour cream? Yeah. Well, that's the other possibilities. Well, there we go. That's an excellent buttermilk and sour yeah. cream. That's the other possibility. Yeah. I think I came across a Betty Crocker recipe with sour cream. Yeah. Well, tr I think that's an excellent suggestion. Yeah. Because that would be yeah. tangy. Yeah. And that's an easy thing to do. Yeah, right. yeah I, I would do that. It'd be delicious, even yeah. if it wasn't the same. I mean, right one. you want to spend two hours churning your own butter just to get some buttermilk to try buttermilk big <laughs> waffles. I mean, that's a little, that's a little on the Extreme. edge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, sour cream. I think of all the things we've said, sour cream. Okay. All right, and Lori, know. let us know how it goes. Okay, R report back, will. please. All right. Okay. Give that Thank a shot. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're stuck in a rut in the kitchen, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Alan. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from, well, I'm near Philadelphia right now. Okay. Can we help you? I hope so. Uh, lately, I've been making, you know, making my own cookies, and sometimes I get an idea for flavor that I particularly, you know, want to see in a cookie. And this time, I'm just not getting there. What I want is to make a pistachio cookie with the kind of, this, like a peanut butter cookie, you know, with that much flavor. And I thought this should be easy. Take peanut butter cookie recipe, grind up some pistachios and substitute, and you're done, right? And the flavor just does not come through after baking, and I don't know why. I've tried adding some serious amounts of, you know, pistachio extract to the batter, to the icing applied after the batter, tried adding pistachios themselves to a kind of a bland cooking recipe, and it never happened. Why is 
the pistachio flavor is so um, elusive, so shy. Yeah. Well, pistachios don't have as much flavor as peanuts. I mean, if if you ever had a peanut butter ice cream, it's just packed with flavor. And if you have pistachio ice cream or gelato in Italy, it's green, <laughs> but it's artificially <laughs> flavored because pistachios don't have a lot of flavor. There's a company called Tourangelle, T-O-U-R-A-N-G-E-L-L-E, and they, they're from France, and they sell um, toasted nut oils. And one mm. of the ones that I love is toasted pistachio oil. It's probably a fairly expensive proposition for a big batch of pistachio cookies, you think? No, I don't think so. It's really strong. It's like toasted sesame oil. Mm. So a little well, goes a long that's way. That's a good idea. I love it. Either Chris or Alan, have you had toasted pumpkin seed oil, mm-hmm. I which have is that. delicious in salads, although very strong. But this is similar in that it's sort of essence of pistachio, and it's. I well, think th- there's it's another great. product we just tasted in Milk Street. It was a pistachio cream, and it was sort of like almond butter. Yeah, but, but it was pistachio. It was a very dark green, and I would eat in the whole jar. If was they it pistachio we? Oh yeah. That's, That's another thing thought. to look at if you get pistachio cream. But to go back to your initial question, if you toasted or roasted the pistachios first and then maybe even ground them to make a flour out of it as part of the cookie, that would be one thing you could do. Substitute some of the all-purpose flour with a homemade pistachio mm. flour. But just adding some chopped up pistachios isn't going to do very much. Try this oil. It also would idea. be delicious in a green salad or... You know, with cheese. It's just wonderful. And it's a great company, Tourangelle. Okay, great. That sounds good. Well, now i got a few more things to try. Well, you know what, Alan, please, will you get back to us and let us know how it goes? Okay, sure. We always like to know. And send us a tin of the cookies. Yeah, well, that's fine to completely (laughs) acceptable. Alan, thank you for calling. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. I'm Ben. I'm calling from New York, and here's my tip. You don't need jarred tomato sauce, a can of crushed tomatoes, or 30 minutes to make a great pasta sauce. All you need is some blistered cherry tomatoes, sliced garlic, and pasta water. Use a spoon to release the tomato juices, then mix it all together to combine, adding some Parmesan cheese if you like. It takes five minutes, and it's the best tomato sauce you'll have. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Dan Pashman, what are you up to these days? Well, Chris, I come to you this week, hat in hand, to ask you for help. What kind of hat do you have? <laughs> I don't need help with the hat. I'm just saying it's in my hand. It's a proverb, okay? okay? How can I help, Dan? Okay, so so my issue is this. I, I, I got a problem with eggplant, okay? And it's really been upsetting me. I love eggplant when it is good eggplant cooked just right, but I don't seem to be able to do that very often in my own home. I love grilled eggplant. I make this yeah, great salad where I take grilled eggplant and grilled red onion and Israeli couscous and mix those all together, and, and people love it. You know, I, I just, any kind of good grilled eggplant, or I'll do it on the, on the sheet pan in the oven, but I feel like, 
you know, I, 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 I've done the research. I know that you're supposed to pick eggplants that have tight, shiny skin and very firm, and I do that, but then I don't always get to cooking it right away. I don't know if they're just sitting in my fridge for too long, or maybe I'm not. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, Chris. Help me. Well, I can, I can help you out. What you do like. I need to do? Well, <clears throat> get any old eggplant, cut it in half uh, lengthwise, score it, right, with a knife. Okay. Oil it, salt it, uh, cut side down on a very hot grill, two to three minutes till it gets nice and brown. Flip it over on the cool side of a grill uh, and let it cook 25, 30 minutes until it's totally soft. I mean, absolutely cooked through. Uh, and then a bunch of oil with some grated garlic in it, maybe sesame seeds or zatar or some other spice mix. Uh, you know, put that on, let that get down into the cracks, and uh, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's thoroughly cooked. It's it's almost like baba ganoush. It's very soft. That sounds really good. You could put you know Greek yogurt on it if you wanted, whatever. I feel like about half the time my eggplant has a very bitter, almost metallic taste. Mm. What am what am I doing wrong? Now, I, I think if you cook it a really long time with some good olive oil at the end, I, I think that bitterness goes away. It becomes actually pretty sweet, especially if you get a really good char, you know, really deep browning on the outside of the uh, the grilled side. Here, here's how I, I typically do it. I'll slice the eggplant into rounds. Right. Uh, pretty thick, you know, like a three quarters of an inch, let's say, thick to maybe even an inch thick and put them on the grill for like, you know, 10 minutes on each side. And... Um, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. And I don't know if I'm picking bad eggplants. I think maybe sometimes I'm just leaving them on the grill too long, but you're saying get a good char on it. They just feel like very fussy vegetables. Well, uh, the other thing is if you're going to cook them that way, slice them, salt them, put them in a colander for 20 minutes, uh, and then actually press out between paper towels. You can press the slices a little bit. And a lot of people think that gets rid of some of the bitterness in the eggplant and go ahead and grill it that way. But I think the, the classic Middle Eastern method of just taking a big, you know, big old eggplant, cutting it in half uh, and grilling it till it's really soft. I find it's very sweet. It has no bitterness. I think long cooking uh, really does the job. All right. That, that's a good tip. I like that. <laughs> you don't sound, wait a minute, Dan, you, you sound half convinced. Well, I, no, I, I, well, I mean, look, I got uh, you know, Chris, like you, I, I'm a, a, a skeptic until I've tried it. So, but, I, but I look, I, I put a lot of uh, stock in your take on these things. So, um, if you tell me that this is going to work, and that I just need to sort of, I think, I think I need a more, a bit more of a low and slow approach, maybe a quick char on the outside. But I think yeah. that maybe I've been cooking my eggplants on too high of a heat for too short of a time, and that's why I'm, yeah. I'm not cooking off the bitterness. I think that's what my problem is. Yeah, you really have to, and the, it, it almost doesn't hold together, you know, as as a vegetable at that point. Uh, it's just terrific. Now you're now you're making me hungry for eggplant. I can, I can't believe I've you know I've changed your life. Can you eat minutes. the skin of an eggplant in any situation? Should it be eaten? Yeah, you can sure. I mean, it, it's fully cooked. It's not tough at all. Right, because because and when I make that salad with the grilled eggplant and the grilled red onion and the Israeli couscous, even when I get the eggplant cooked just right, a lot of people I find pick out the pieces of charred skin. <laughs> Are these family members or just <laughs> distant relations? They're friends and acquaintances. <laughs> oh, well. Now, I think low and slow. Start grill over hot, low and slow, half an hour or so. Okay. Um, and you'll, you'll get a soft sweet, creamy eggplant. It's one of the easiest recipes in the world. It'll change your mind about bitter eggplant. Okay. 
Do you share my disdain for eggplant parmesan? Yes. Good. Because because the texture, eggplant, unless you really fully cook it, the texture is dubious. But again, salt, slicing, salting, and pressing between paper towels will get a lot of that liquid out and give you a meatier texture if you go the sliced right. route, but which, I, which I would do. For I feel like texture. with eggplant parm, either you end up where like the eggplant's sliced very, so thin that it's kind of invisible, and you're really just like... Right. We all want to believe, oh, it's healthy because it's eggplant. But, like, didn't you fry the eggplant and now it's all breaded and, like, you know, there's a lot of fat and then it's, like, the eggplant disappears. You're really just eating, like, crispy bits with cheese and sauce, which is delicious. But then just, like, put it in chicken already. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> plus, like you say, if you don't drain the water in advance, it gets very wet. It's very sort of soggy. That's true. But I've solved your eggplant problem. It, and it's simple. The best solution is simplicity, right? So there you You're go. right. I, I think that I think the things I was doing wrong is that I was I was over overcomplicating things and I was cooking right. it too high, too fast. And I think this has been a good session. I appreciate your input, and I'm gonna go cook some eggplant now. By the way, I bill by the half hour increments. So. <laughs> Dan, you came to me with hat in hand, and uh, you walked away with a whole eggplant. And hopefully, you can go back to the kitchen and cook a good one. That's right. I'll keep an eye out for that invoice, Chris. Thanks. Okay. Take care, Dan. <laughs> That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. A 2011 study of Japanese children found that the eggplant was, in fact, their most hated vegetable. And I guess that Dan Pashman agrees. First grown in India, eggplant is now known as the king of vegetables. Proponents say that it prevents cancer and cardiovascular disease and is also good for weight loss and brain activity. On the other hand, the eggplant wizard, a famous video game character, has a staff that shoots deadly eggplants. So Dan, maybe you should stop playing video games and spend more time in the kitchen. You might just learn to love the king of vegetables. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.